In the opening section of this psalm, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And you remember how the psalm ends? It ends exactly the same way as it began. David prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Possibly one of the best loved children's stories of all time would be Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. And in the introduction to that interesting and famous work, the author wrote... Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures in it. What's the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures? I'm sure there are some of you here in this service this evening and you would fully agree with that sentiment, particularly the younger ones and maybe the older ones as well. What's the use of a book without pictures? Because pictures are so much more compelling, so much more interesting, fascinating and engaging than just mere words. That's why every a publisher uh, provides illustrators and uh, every newspaper, photographers. Uh, that's why the television is always more popular than the radio and the cinema than the public library. And perhaps also this is one of the reasons why many people profess today to find the Bible difficult. Because the Bible is a book without pictures. In fact, not only are the pictures absent, they are strictly forbidden. You remember how concerning worship, God has made it clear in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything which is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Nothing could be clearer. Pictures, images of God for worship are forbidden. Of course, it hasn't stopped people trying. Uh, you may remember the famous story of the young boy in his art class at school. And he was painting away a picture one day. His teacher eventually came over to have a look and was rather puzzled by the composition 
And so he said to the young lad, tell me, he said, what exactly is it that you're painting here? God came the reply. But exclaimed the teacher, nobody knows what God looks like. Well, they will, he said, when I finished. And perhaps he's not the first person in history to display that kind of artistic overconfidence or cockiness. Possibly the most famous painting of all is the one by Michelangelo on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in St. Peter's in Rome. You remember in that scene he depicts God the creator as a kind of muscular geriatric with his long white hair and, uh, and flowing beard attached to what looks like the body of an Olympic athlete. Of course, artistically, it's an absolute masterpiece. But it is a painting, a picture that demonstrates very clearly just why the Bible is hostile towards graven images. Because however great, however competent an artist you might be, you can never do justice to the living God. And images dishonour God because they obscure his glory. You see, there's no picture, no painting, no uh, image in stone or mental image that we can make that can portray the living God as he really is in his essential, spiritual, glorious being. And thus to attempt to do so is to detract from him and to insult his majesty. John Calvin, the reformer, rightly said, a true image of God is not to be found in all the world and hence his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is itself impious, because by this corruption his majesty is adulterated and he is figured to be other than he really is. Yes, the Bible is a book without pictures. It has to be, because there is an impenetrable mystery about God. And therefore, to paint any picture or image of God for the purpose of worship is uh, to detract from him. It is to insult him. It is to reduce the triune majesty to a God of pygmy proportions. Do you remember how the prophet Isaiah in that 40th chapter raises that crucial question, doesn't he? He says, to whom then or to what then will you liken God? And his challenge, of course, is unanswerable because we scan the universe in vain to find any adequate comparison. He is the incomparable one and there is no one like him in heaven above or on the earth beneath. He is the king eternal, immortal, invisible. God, who alone is wise. He is the one, as scripture says, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen, nor can see. 
Now, this, of course, immediately presents us with a great problem, doesn't it? A great difficulty. Maybe you're thinking to yourselves tonight, well, if it's true that God is invisible and doesn't have a body, a form like us, and cannot be seen with the naked eye, and there is nothing in the vast universe that we can liken him to, then how are we to form any adequate concept of God whatsoever? And the answer, of course, is words. Words. You see, the Bible is undoubtedly a book without pictures. But when it comes to the being and the nature of God, the pen of the prophet can communicate what the brush of the artist must inevitably distort, the mystery of God. And I say to you, friends, tonight that nowhere does the Bible display the power of words to do that more wonderfully, more effectively than here in Psalm 139. This psalm has been described as the crown of all the psalms. And rightly so, it's an absolute masterpiece, isn't it? It's one of the most exquisite pieces of Hebrew poetry to be found anywhere in the whole realm of human literature. But on top of that, here we have the revelation of the invisible God. Here the psalmist reveals to us the God who is. And David, writing this psalm under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit, tells us three amazing things about the mystery of God. In the first place, he reveals the mystery of his all-embracing knowledge. The mystery of God's all-embracing knowledge. What theologians call the omniscience of God. That God knows all and that God sees all. Notice how he brings this out in verses 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, we are living in the days of electronic surveillance, aren't we? There are cameras almost everywhere. Uh, We find them not only on our motorways, but we find them virtually in every shop that you go into. We find them in the great shopping malls and arcades like Blue Water and Lakeside, Westfield and others. And... uh, We see them in our town and city centres. It's the day of Big Brother, isn't it? You are being watched. And this is exactly how David felt in this psalm before us. He is being inspected by an all-seeing eye. And yet in David's case, the surveillance is unceasing. 
It goes on 24 hours of every day, 365 days of every year. And it scrutinises not just his outward actions, but even his inward thoughts and words as well. The living God probes into every corner and every detail of his existence. He says, Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. I have no privacy, Lord, no room in my mind from which I can possibly exclude you. Everything I do, everything I say, everything I think is naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. David felt utterly exposed and naked in the presence of his God. Now some people today would feel very threatened by such interference. People love their privacy, don't they? And uh, they don't like it if they're exposed and, and if there are cameras on them and people know what's going on. But David doesn't see it that way at all. Although verse 5 may give the impression that David felt like a, a prisoner, trapped and hemmed in, yet in fact nothing could be further from the truth. Because that word hemmed in our version, the ESV, or hedged in the New King James, um, is a, a word that is better uh, uh, replaced by the, the word enclosed. It's a much better translation. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. You see, it's the picture of David being lovingly protected in the enclosed palm of God's omnipotent hand. What could be more wonderful than that? And that's why David breaks out in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You see, David's not complaining. David's rejoicing. He's lost in wonder, love and praise. He's simply overwhelmed by the vastness and the greatness of God's infinite knowledge. And friends, in this service tonight, what a comfort what a comfort this truth should be to us as believers. What a consolation tonight. What an encouragement. Because it means that he knows your daily trials. He knows your circumstances. He knows your thoughts tonight. He knows your sadness, your grief, your sorrow. He sees your tears. He collects them in his bottle. He knows everything about you. He sees you in the night time when you're in sore distress. He knows, he understands. The Bible says that he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's watching over you night and day with his tender love, compassion and care. He knows what we have need of even before we ask him. And even at times when we are in great difficulties and sore distress. He knows, for he is with us at all times. Friends, let's take great comfort. Let's rejoice in this amazing truth tonight. 
But let's also remember that whilst the omniscience of God is a comfort to the believer, at the same time, it is a most alarming and terrifying thought, isn't it, to the non-Christian, to the ungodly. I mean, how solemn, how solemn is this thought that nothing, nothing can be concealed from him. He knows your thoughts. He knows the motives of your heart. He knows your past. He knows your secret sins. The Bible says that all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Oh, friend, if you're not a Christian tonight, then shake and tremble. Because there is surely coming a day when God will judge the secrets of men and women by Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us that there is coming a day when every word, every thought, every deed, everything that we have ever done will be revealed and displayed for all to see. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. Sinner tonight, shake and tremble, flee to Christ for refuge, for salvation. But Christian brother and sister, rejoice. Take great comfort in this amazing truth of the omniscience, the all-embracing knowledge of the living God. Lord, you have searched me and know me. The mystery of his all-embracing knowledge. But then secondly, David reveals to us here the mystery of God's inescapable presence. Look at verses 7 through 12. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, on the surface, it does appear that David is considering the idea of flight, fleeing from those irresistible, all-penetrating eyes of God. And for a moment, he begins to consider whether or not there is a place in this vast universe where he can escape from the living God and be completely alone. But merely to entertain the thought is at once to perceive its impossibility. For this living God not only knows everything, but he is everywhere at all times. And there is not a place in this vast universe where God is not. Do you remember the words of the prophet Isaiah? He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. 
For heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Yes, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Many years ago, there was a a teacher uh, who wrote the words on the blackboard. And I thought I had them here. Oh, yes, I have. He wrote the words on the blackboard hastily. God is nowhere. God is nowhere. He was an ardent atheist. He was a humanist. And he wanted to try and remove any consciousness of God from the minds of his students. And he began to indoctrinate them day after day, week after week. And, and he used to get quite exasperated if people uh, acknowledged uh, the presence of the living God. And in exasperation he wrote, God is nowhere. And one of the lads put up his hand and he said, yes, teacher. He said, you know, that's exactly what my Bible says. God is now here. (laughs) And you see, this is precisely the experience of the psalmist here in our psalm. Because he suddenly sets before us four possible escape routes or hiding places. And then he instantly goes on to reveal, in fact, that God is in every one of them. Don't try them. He says, if I should take a space rocket, if I should go to NASA and enter one of these rockets and blast up through the heavens, I would never outdistance you. Or if I decide to descend into the terrifying depths of the underworld, the abode of the dead, shale, I would never outpace you. Or if I took the wings of the morning, literally the wings of the dawn. It's a beautiful picture of travel at the speed of light. He literally says if I should take the fastest supersonic jet like Concorde and speed across the oceans of the earth to the other side, I would never outpace you. For you are everywhere. You are inescapable. Now, once again, it would be very easy, wouldn't it, to resent this truth. But David doesn't see it that way at all. David here is rejoicing. You see, he doesn't want to try and run away and escape and hide from the living God. David's not complaining here. He's rejoicing. And he's delighting and reveling in the fact that God is always there. That God is with him at all times. Not to frighten him and threaten him but to comfort him and to protect him and to make him feel secure. And that's why he says here in verse 10, even there, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Friends, what an immense encouragement, what a comfort to us as Christian believers here tonight. Because it means that whatever trial, whatever circumstance you may be in, you're never alone. Do you remember that amazing promise that God made to his people Israel in Isaiah 43? God speaks to his people directly and he says to them, fear not, fear not. 
I mean, these are surely some of the most encouraging, some of the most reassuring words in the human vocabulary. Fear not. Don't be afraid. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Of course, there are times when we go through trials and difficulties and, and we have friends and uh, loved ones and neighbours and people in the church who come up to you and they put their arm around you and they say, don't be afraid. Fear not. I'm sure all is going to be well. I'm sure things will uh, work out for the best in the end. And they mean well, don't they? But it doesn't give us any comfort, does it really? I mean, because their words are weightless. You know, their sentiment really is nice, but it, it doesn't help us, does it? Because when we're in the darkness, when we're going through the trial, the problem is we are afraid, aren't we? If we're honest, we are afraid, we're terrified. We don't know what's going to happen. That's the problem. And we're anxious and we're worried and we're stewed up about things. And it's really not helpful when someone comes and just pats you on the back and says, don't be afraid, don't worry, all will be well. But friends, when God comes to you personally and says to you, fear not, well, there are grounds for encouragement, aren't there? There are grounds for consolation and to take hope. In fact, God never comes to his people and just says, fear not. He doesn't just glibly come to you and say, don't be afraid, brother, sister. No, no, he gives us grounds for hope. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God. And friends, these are not just trite, empty words, are they? Some religious claptrap. This has been the blessing and the experience of the people of God down through the ages. God is with his people at all times, in all situations. He's with us when we go through the flames. He is with us when we go through the fiery trial. He's with us in the den of lions. There is one with us. Indeed, he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And if you're thinking, well, this is all right for Israel, for the old covenant people of God. Let me encourage you tonight that this is the same word that comes to us as new covenant believers from the Lord. Do you remember our Lord's words, his legacy before he left this earth and ascended to heaven? He said, lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mystery of his inescapable presence. The mystery of his all-embracing knowledge, the mystery of his inescapable presence, and then thirdly and lastly and most gloriously, 
the best of all, he reveals the mystery of God's sovereign providence. Look at verses 13 to 16. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. As I look back over my life, over the decades, I think that one of the most exciting times, one of the most exciting experiences of my life was when Marilyn fell pregnant with our firstborn daughter, Sarah. And we were invited to go up to the hospital in London for the ultrasound scan. And it was absolutely amazing, incredible, to see the unborn child, our child, that God had given, to see her swimming around in her mother's womb to her heart's content, with all her little features perfectly formed, her heart beating away, 19 to the dozen, and all in miniature. Absolutely wonderful. But of course, that was, uh, in fact, 40 years ago now, this year. And uh, things have changed. The ultrasound scans in those days weren't up to much. They were black and white. They were very grainy images. Uh, it was difficult sometimes to make out things. In fact, we had to rely on the skill of the sonographer to point out the head from the foot. Um, but uh, she explained things and you could just about make things out and you could see the baby there in the womb. Wonderful. But you know, 40 years on, it's incredible, isn't it? looking at the ultrasound scans of our grandchildren. It's amazing. I mean, the detail, the sharpness of, of the image, it's absolutely incredible. In black, in, not in black and white, but in colour, three-dimensional, absolutely incredible. Just up the road from where we live, there is a, a little place, I think it's closed recently, called Windows in the Womb. You may have seen it, and it's exactly that. And... Uh, uh, pregnant mothers can go with their partners and they can have a full video done of uh, the unborn baby in the womb playing around. And the detail is incredible. The colour, it's absolutely amazing. And you can see uh, the little one with uh, thumb in mouth and uh, playing around. Uh, it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? Mind-blowing. There is perhaps nothing that is so thrilling, so wonderful, so mysterious as the growth and the development of the unborn child. Well, David knew nothing about this. I mean, David had never seen an ultrasound scan in his life. He didn't know what went on down there, really. He'd never seen it with his eyes. He knew nothing about the study of genetics and embryology and all the things that we're so familiar with today. He probably never even witnessed the birth of a baby before because fathers in those times didn't. 
It was all a mystery. It was hidden from them. But David knew enough to realise that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he ascribes it all to the sovereign, gracious providence of his God. He says, Lord, you were the one who was with me before I was born. You were the one who was giving me my prenatal care. You were there in my mother's womb, creating me, forming me, knitting together all my wondrous parts. And not only that, says David, but you were the one who planned out my entire life from me from start to finish. And you determined the length of all my days and even the content of each of those days before even one of them came to pass. What's more glorious than that? The mystery of God's sovereign providence. Now, once again, friends, this is a truth that many people today find utterly repugnant. They hate such a strong doctrine of God's sovereign control over our lives. But David doesn't feel that way at all. In fact, David is rejoicing, isn't he? He says, I will praise you. I will praise you. And in verse 17, he says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sands. When I awake, I am still with you. David is rejoicing. He's overwhelmed by the greatness of God's sovereign providence. Friend, tonight let me ask you in this service, what is your response to the mystery of God? You see, all the way through this psalm, we have seen that there are only two reactions we can have and only two responses that we can make. We can either try and run away and hide from the living God and get away from him and resent his invasion, his intrusion into our lives. Or we can cheerfully come before him like the psalmist and simply pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One writer says, David shows us the way here to real fulfilment of our human existence when he says, search me, O God. In one respect, it is accepting the inevitable. For what God discovers when he searches us is no surprise to him. He's already looked there before. The reason he longs for us to pray this prayer is not because there is something hidden inside us that he doesn't know about, but because he wants our friendship. He wants a relationship with us that will enable him to cleanse us from any offensive way and lead us in the way everlasting. Oh, my friend, tonight, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, are you ready for this? Are you willing to pray such a prayer as this? 
Are you willing for God to come into your life and to deal with your sin? Oh, I say to you tonight, stop running away. There is no place left for you to hide. Come before him. Confess to him your sin. Call upon his great name. And in his mercy and in his infinite grace, he will forgive your sin. And you too will be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And he will lead you into that way of life. Everlasting. But of course it's important to understand that this is not just a prayer for the unconverted, is it? It's a prayer for the godly. It's a prayer for the believer. You see, David is praying this prayer for himself as a covenant child. You see, David realised that this is not simply a prayer that we need to pray when we have returned from our backslidings. It's not just a prayer that we need to pray when we are conscious of some sin, some grievous sin that we have committed. No, no, it's a prayer that we need to pray when we take stock of our lives. You see, it's so easy, isn't it, to go on in the Christian life week after week, month after month, year after year, imagining that all is well with our soul and in our relationship with God. We go on blindly, we go on ignorantly. But there are times when we need to pause. There are times when we need to take stock. There are times when we need to pray this prayer. At the beginning of a new year, 2024, is a good place to start, isn't it? I think it's also a prayer that we need to pray at the beginning of a new week, the Lord's Day. As we come into the sanctuary, as we come into the Lord's house and the Lord's presence. And it's certainly a prayer that we need to constantly pray whenever we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. To examine ourselves in the light of his word, in the light of his presence. To humbly come before him and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. May God grant it so for each one, for his glory. Amen.